Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. Just, uh, yes, welcome to the visitors. Just so you know, uh, tonight again at 4 p.m. is our Christmas Eve service. So that will be, I'll be preaching from Luke 2, but preaching a much shorter message uh, than usual. Um, today, we're in Genesis 3, 8 through 15, um, entitled The Advent of Christ. We're currently in our Creation, Culture, and Christ series. The title is called The Advent of Christ. Also, I'm preaching on Luke 2 and Peace on Earth, so the sermon will just be about the exact same as Jordan just said, but uh, in length as well. So anyway, uh, if you are looking forward to the Christmas Eve service, uh, I'll be preaching from Luke 2 tonight. Today we're in Genesis 3. Start in verse 8 through verse 15. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten? From the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals, you will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Well, Heavenly Father, God, um, we look to you for your word, God, and, and ultimately it doesn't matter what passage of Scripture we preach from, Lord, because it all points to Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, the story of the Bible is, is, is you choosing us to redeem us through the Son of God incarnate and giving us life through the Spirit and perfecting our faith, Lord. And that story is centered on the work of Christ. And God, I, I pray that you would help us to Use this passage today to understand you, to understand more of your character, to understand the weight and significance of our sin, and, and even to have application, Lord, what to do when we're in sin, which just goes back to what the Bible points us to is we go to Christ. Go to Christ when we're in sin, and you forgive it. And that's made possible through his cross and resurrection through his death and resurrection, Lord. And God, we, we ask for help understanding your word today, and may we respond to it by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. When it comes to epic stories, uh, at least I think this is an epic story, I'm a sucker for a video game called Zelda. 
If you're laughing, you probably know what it is. If not, oops. Zelda is the princess who gets abducted by, by this evil man named Ganon. Every single game they make, it's the same story. And Ganon eventually turns into a dragon. Link is the prince or the knight who has to go to... Uh, he has to go and defeat the evil dragon in order to rescue the princess. Now, the, a prince slaying the dragon to save the princess. That's an epic story. It's an epic tale, and it's told in a thousand different ways. Uh, Zelda's just, just one of them. The original tale of the prince slaying the dragon to save the princess is actually first told here. It's first told from the Bible. It's the original story. And it's, it's first, and not only is its first occurrence in the Bible, its first occurrence is here in Genesis 3. The great dragon is the serpent, Satan. The princess in distress who needs saved, who needs rescued from the dragon, is the church. And the prince who must do it, who must save her, who must rescue his bride, is Jesus. The story begins, that epic tale we see begins in verses 14 and 15. It's what's known as Proto-Evangelion, which means the first gospel. That's what that long term means. Proto means first. Evangelion means announcement, and in this case, it's an announcement of good news, or as we refer to it as evangelicals, the gospel. It's the first announcement of the gospel. It's the first time that God announces the coming redemption for his people, and we're told that it will come through the seed of the woman. When this child of Eve comes, whoever that may be, at this point, they didn't know. But when he comes, he will destroy the serpent. He will destroy the great dragon, as Revelation 12 calls him. I found it fitting on Christmas Eve that today we come to the very first passage which ever announces the advent of Christ. So it actually is a uh, Christmas Eve sermon. Well, with that said... We should observe verses 8 through 13, because there's some helpful application that we can take away from Adam and Eve's encounter with God. So point number one, don't hide from God. <laughs> then the man heard his wife, sorry, <laughs> that's a different sermon. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God, and he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So we know cold weather came after the fall, right? Sorry for you snow lovers. Ah, just joking. And they hid from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid. They hid from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. One temptation we all face as Christians is the resistance to or even reluctancy to confess our sins. And part of it's because we don't want others to look down upon us, that we don't want them to think less of us. 
I mean, it's, it, it's natural to, to feel that way. There's an essence of shame that does go with sin. Sin is something we should lament over, right? Not, not boast about. Yet the reluctancy to confess for fear how others will view us, it's actually contrary to how the church is supposed to respond to each other's confessions. We're, we are called the church, goodness, those redeemed sinners forgiven by the grace of God are called to forgive others who confess their sin. And there, there may need to be some work of restoration, repentance, renouncing, re, renouncing sin. But the, the church should be the one place on earth where sinners are able to find forgiveness. As God's people, we're called to replicate the model of Christ by forgiving one another. He forgave us. Of course, we're not only tempted to not confess our sins to one another, we're also tempted to refrain from confessing our sins to God. Somehow, we've come, or somehow we can come to the conclusion or believe that we are able to keep our sins a secret from God. Adam and Eve thought the same, right? Right here in Genesis 3. Because after they ate from the tree and they heard God coming, <laughs> what does it say? They hid from God. At least they tried. Their, their inclination, their, their, their go-to to hide from God reminds me of something my Aunt Mary uh, used to tell me. And she used to tell me all the time in reference to the Bible. She, she would point to her Bible or just talk about the Bible and say, Timmy, this book will keep you from sin. It'll keep you from sinning. But sin will keep you from this book. In other words, what she was saying is that the Bible teaches a repentant person how to live like Christ. But when an unrepentant person reads the Bible and becomes confronted with the reality of their sin, they inevitably are going to feel a sense of guilt and shame. They're going to want to Close the Bible. Now, for example, it is impossible to read the book of James and not be convicted about having a loose tongue. Not being convicted about being slow to anger, quick to listen, slow to speak. Maybe it's a personal confession. It's hard for me to read the book of James and not be convicted by that. Why? Because the Word of God says not to do that, and I just did that. Some, somehow, we would say through the Spirit, just somehow God is able to just take His Word, take the Bible, and pierce us right through the heart. And, and in fact, I would say, if you're reading through the Bible and that isn't happening, that's a bigger problem than it is, than if it's happening. 
If your heart is callous to the word of God, there's a bigger issue there that the spirit may not have come yet to give you a new heart. So it's not bad for God to pierce our heart with his word. But if we don't want that, the way that we avoid it is by never reading the Bible at all. If I don't want convicted about my tongue and the way that I speak or the way that I don't listen, then I know I don't want to read the book of James. So therefore, I refuse to do it. We all do. For the fear of our sins being exposed. Like Adam and Eve, well, maybe we're not hiding in a bush, right? Hiding behind trees. But we try to hide from God as well. Now, if we have read our Bibles, then when we come to Psalm 139, we learn, well, it's not possible to hide from God. Where can I go from your spirit, God? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will be not dark to you. The night will shine like the day. For darkness is as light to you. What is he saying? No matter what I try to do, no matter where I try to go, no matter how much I try to keep from your knowledge, there's nothing I can keep from you, God. You know. You can't escape the Lord. I think about it. Our, our, our sermon series is called Creation, Culture, and Christ. Creation. Who, who does the Bible say created the heavens and the earth? God, through Jesus. And who sustains the heavens and the earth by his word and power? Jesus. So how can the ones who even sustain our lives, our, the beating of our heart, who still gives us breath, not be aware of what's going on inside of our heart? There's nothing that he is not aware of. If that's true, why does God say, and now what does he say, why does God ask, where are you, Adam? Where? Where'd you go? Hey, is God actually curious about Adam's location? I, I would say God's omniscience would say no. And God's omniscience means he's all-knowing. He knows everything. God doesn't learn. He has no potential for learning. He just knows everything. If God were truly unaware of Adam's location, it would disqualify God from being omniscient. So I think we can safely elim- eliminate that option. That God's not aware of where Adam and Eve are. Instead, what I want to suggest is when God asks someone a question like this, where are you? 
He doesn't intend to get an answer. He expects to get a confession. Genesis 4, one chapter later. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I'm sorry, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God didn't need Cain to tell him where Abel was. He already knew. Verse 10 says, the blood of your brother is crying out to me, Cain. He's not asking where his brother. He's not looking for an answer. He's looking for a confession. If you're a parent or have been a child, you know this type of rhetorical device that our parents like to use. Our, our parents are pros at this. Some of you are, are, are pros at this. I remember as a teenager, my sister and I came home one night, and as soon as we walked in the house, my mom had two chairs set out for us in the living room. <laughs> and, and she said, take a seat. And then she just asked us, got anything you want to tell me? At that moment, we knew that she knew exactly what we had done. Of course, I mean, the criminal's response is, what do you know? No. She knew. She she wasn't asking a question. Got anything you want to tell me? She knew what we had done. As parents, we're not asking for a question. We're asking for our kids to come clean, to be honest, to confess. The same seems true when God asks Adam, where are you? He's not uncertain about Adam's whereabouts. He's calling Adam to account for what he had done. Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? There's a bit of application there for us, right? Don't hide from God. Don't try to hide our sins from God. We may be able to pull the wool over everyone else's eyes, right? We can do that. We can trick everyone else. We can deceive everyone else, friends, family, co-workers. But we can't fool God, right? The depth of his knowledge includes knowing the thoughts and intentions of our own hearts. We see that in the Gospels, don't we? We see Jesus tell a man his sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees, they think, they don't say out loud, they think within their hearts, this man's a blasphemy. And Jesus says, why are you thinking in your hearts? He knows our thoughts. And, and, and hopefully that reminds us to, to not try to hide our sins from God. And instead, confess our sins to him. But the second point is, to, not just to quickly confess, confess our sins with our whole heart. In verses 11 and 13, 
And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent, he deceived me and I ate. All right. God calls him to account. Adam confesses. Kind of. Because he also tries to blame shift. Hey, look at verse 12. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit and I ate. This this is husband of the year award right here. I love it. I mean, (laughs) Adam, have you eaten from the tree I committed you not to? Yes, Lord. But it's my wife's fault. Oh. That's a fun dinner conversation that night. Hey, there's, there's, a, there's a gospelization, though, a, a, a distinction that's worth noting here between Adam and Jesus. And, and, and Adam blaming his wife for his sin. The notable distinction is, while Adam tries to cast guilt upon his bride, Jesus died for the guilt of his. There's a difference. This is why Jesus is the second Adam, the final Adam. Jesus doesn't pass the blame to others. Jesus takes our blame upon himself on the cross. I mean, just like the the self-centeredness of sin. Adam doesn't even just blame his wife. He faults God. Lord, It was the woman you gave me. Had you not created this one, you know, none of this would have happened. I mean, if you think about it, Lord, it's kind of your fault. I mean, due to the self-centeredness and Adam's lack of accountability, God doesn't even respond to Adam. Uh, Uh... I believe it was Casuto, a Genesis commentator, who said, God's silence toward Adam's response reveals how ludicrous it actually was. Next, he turns to Eve. What have you done? Well, the serpent deceived me. The old, the devil made me do it response. She, too, admits partial guilt, like Adam, but... She shifts blame onto the serpent. And we we should see and hopefully acknowledge that although she she may have been tricked into sin, Scripture clearly says she was deceived by the serpent. But Scripture also says she's still guilty before God for her choices. That's our reality as well. Like Eve, there, there, there's, no, there's no excuse for a lack of knowledge or ignorance to God's commands. Even being deceived is no excuse for sin. There's, there's no amount of reasoning or justification that will persuade God to pardon our sins. No, He... 
wants our, he wants our whole heart, our entire heart. That, in, that includes in our confessions. He's not looking for excuses, right? He's not looking for us to blame someone. He's already provided atonement for our penalty in Christ. Right? The, the application is confess with, all, with, with, with your entire heart, with your whole heart. The thing is, I don't, I don't want you to confess simply out of fear of punishment. We, we should confess out of gratitude and in expectation of his mercy. It's, yeah, sin is a bad thing, but confessing is the right thing to do. And, and the Bible says those who confess... We find forgiveness. We don't find condemnation. How does this I know I saved it. How did this happen? Why is this not? This happened last week. Huh. Oh, there we go. When you prepare two sermons, you get confused. Well, we shouldn't. We shouldn't forget what I just said. The Bible says those who confess their sin, they find mercy, they find forgiveness. Proverbs 28, whoever conceals their sins doesn't prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Psalm 32, David says, I acknowledge my sin to you, God. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And what did the Lord do? You forgave the guilt of my sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I know every one of us from time to time can struggle with being assured of God's forgiveness. It makes sense. That we struggle with that because the grace of God, which freely offers forgiveness without requiring anything in return, it's hard to fathom. Like, why would God do that? But we have to remind ourselves, and, and I think this is why Paul says uh, to, to Corinth and 1 Corinthians 15, and I would remind you, I would remind you, I would remind you, I would remind you, I would remind you of the gospel. Because it's easy to be merit-based in our relationship with God. It's easy to think if we confess our sins, he's not pleased with us because we've sinned, and therefore our relationship is tainted, and it's not as good as it was, therefore I'm going to try to conceal my sin from God because I don't want him to know the real me. I got a newsflash. God already knows the real you, and that's why he sent Jesus Christ to die for your sin. Your salvation and the forgiveness of your sins is not based on your effort, your strength, or even the size of your faith. Your salvation is not reliant on you at all. The forgiveness of your sins is completely dependent on the work of Christ. And it relies on the strength of his blood. 
believing your sins are forgiven is not on the basis of whether or not God accepts your confession. Rather, it's based on whether or not God accepted Jesus' death as your substitution. Think of the hymn. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In whose place? In my place. In your place. In our place. Condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon. Sealed your pardon. Sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. We'll finish with Hebrews 2 soon enough. Hebrews 2 tells us that, that he didn't even, redemption's not for the angels. The angels sing. Uh, today a savior is born. Hallelujah. Peace on earth. They sing. They worship Christ because of he's this magnificent savior. God becoming flesh to die for sinful men. They sing about it and they don't even get to experience it because God didn't become an angel. He became man. Bearing shame and scoffing root. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood, do you believe that God has pardoned your sin in Christ? It's, I don't know if it's application, but God initiated our salvation through Christ. That's our final point. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In verse 15, we see that God is the one who initiates the plan for our redemption. Now, that plan goes even further back between the Trinity, but we don't have time for that theology this morning. So we just, God initiates the plan, reveals the plan, announces the plan here in Genesis 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. From this moment on, there's going to be hostility between the offspring of Eve and Satan. We'll get more into that in Genesis 4 when we look at Cain and Abel. But for now, we, we can just note that Satan is going to continually attack the offspring of Eve. And that includes Christ, and that includes his followers. The people of God will be at war with the offspring of Satan. And in that regard, I'm not talking about culture. I'm not talking about those who disagree politically with us or have some different views. I'm talking about the principalities of darkness. A war is not against flesh. Probably do a lot of us, including myself, to remember that. I want you to notice something about verse 15. God says, Jesus, this, this coming offspring, the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, who we know is Jesus now, Jesus will crush the head of the serpent. 
with the foot that is bitten, right? Let me, let me unpack that for a second. You will strike his heel. He will crush your head. Which means ultimately what, what Satan thinks and what Satan thought would kill the son of man, son of God, it actually ended up destroying him. He tried to strike his heel, and it ended up crushing his head. It ended up defeating him. Because Satan thought Jesus' ministry would be over once he was executed on the cross. This is what Satan didn't realize, is that Jesus' ministry was the cross. That was his purpose. That is why the Son of God became flesh. He was born so that he may die. I, I hope it makes sense that, that God, God says, look, you'll strike his heel, Satan, but he's going to crush your skull with the foot that you strike him with. And therefore, that which you use to destroy him is going to end up being what I use to destroy you. Loved one, if there, if there is a doctrine of theology that I wish, I desire every single one of us to grasp, to learn, to, to, to understand, even for relevance in every situation we find in life, especially in suffering and affliction, it's that what Satan intends for evil, God intends for good. The greatest place that we see, the ultimate place that we see that reality, that we see that theology is on the cross. It's at the cross. Because what Satan to use to take the life of the Son of God incarnate is what God used in order to redeem us sinners and give us life. Hebrews 2, 14 through 17. Since the children have flesh and blood in common, since the children, since humans, have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. So that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil. I'm not reciting this, or this isn't my own. This yeah, sorry, I should put that up there. This is what it says. If you have your Bible, mark this down and just understand. Hebrews 2, 14 through 17, it says that Jesus shared in the flesh so that Jesus became a man, the Son of God became flesh, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, which is the devil. His death destroyed the work and power of Satan. In verse 15, and freed those who were held in slavery all their lives by fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, right? But to Abraham's offspring, 
Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters every way. If you're in Christ, you're his brother and sister. So that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God. Whoever the author of Hebrews is. How did Jesus become a faithful high priest? To make atonement for the sins of the people. He destroys the work of Satan by dying. He sets us free. We don't have to fear death because we know in Christ we will live forever. We're free from sin. We're no longer enslaved to sin. And to make atonement for the sins of people. And our sins are forgiven. We can confess our sins. We don't have to hide from God. The grace of our God is amazing. And even after the rebellion in Genesis 3, even after Adam and Eve's rebellion, not only their rebellion, just knowing the rebelliousness in my own heart, the sinfulness in my own heart, it's still perplexing to me how God wants anything to do with any of us. And yet, in humility, in Genesis 3, he takes the initiative Hebrews 12, Christ is the initiator and perfecter of our faith. He's the initiator. Initiator. And here we, in the first few chapters of the Bible, we, we, I mean, we, we have a God who is so glorious that the host of heaven sits around the throne, around his throne, just singing all day, forever, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. A, a God who is, who is so terrifying that when the prophets like Ezekiel and John come into his presence in a vision, they pass out in terror. A God who is so pure that the prophet Isaiah, when he enters the temple in a vision, can only say, woe is me, for I have seen the glory of the Lord. And yet, here in Genesis 3, where the first couple that God made became unfaithful to him, we see that he pursues them. He initiates their redemption. They didn't run to him for forgiveness. They hid. And I'm sure they had good reason. He's God. He's God. And they committed a great transgression against him. And when we see when people come into counter with the living God, they panic. And I just, I just want to close with this. Here in Genesis 3 and in the Gospels and throughout the Bible, for us, we see that the Lord is the good shepherd who goes after his sheep. There we go. Jesus says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one who went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. Now that's just a story, a parable that Jesus uses to illustrate a point. 
And the point is that God seeks after his lost sheep. God pursues you. And when he finds you and saves you and gives you new life, he rejoices over you. Your God rejoices over you in Christ Jesus. How does God view you? In Christ Jesus, he celebrates. He celebrates you. I think that's a neat reminder as we celebrate the advent of Christ today, which is first announced in the Garden of Eden. And for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. You shall have a son, and you shall call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would use your words, you would use your word and your spirit, Lord, to remind us that that you rejoice over us, that, that sometimes the application is just to get to know who you are more So it will drive more affection and give us more desire for you, Lord. And sometimes when we don't have any desire for you, when we don't want to read your word, when we don't want to pray to you, when we don't want to spend time with you, it's only because we don't know who you are, Lord, but you're willing and you are there at the door, ready to invade our lives with yourself to explain exactly who you are and what you've done because of your great love for us, God. And Lord, I pray that that would be the application, God. Lord, that you would pour into the hearts of those who are here today so that we would be reminded that we should celebrate, that we should worship our Savior that loves us and that died for us. Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.